Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. The amazing story of the prophet Jonah has much to teach us, not only about the wayward heart of Jonah, but about us and our weakness. And it teaches us about the very heart of God. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now here's this week's message. Well, good morning, everyone. Glad to be here with you and invite you to turn with me to uh, the book of Jonah, chapter 3. Two weeks ago, we looked at Jonah 1, and last week, Jonah 2, and the Lord willing, next week, we'll look at uh, Jonah 4. But Jonah, chapter 3, tells of a second chance, an opportunity for a do-over. And so let's read that together. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger, so we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever wished or thought about a second chance, a do-over? Some of you, of course, are probably golfers, and you know the concept of a mulligan, that you are allowed on the front nine and the back nine one second chance at a tee shot when you blow the first one. School will soon start again, and soon into what's likely the first term or semester, a photographer will come to the school where your children or grandchildren attend and take pictures of children and grandchildren, and then they will be distributed, and some will go, ugh. And then they get a retake, a second chance, an opportunity to portray a grandchild with a smile. Or perhaps you've, as I was about five or six weeks ago, sucked into a financial scam. I walked into it with my eyes wide open, and I'm still mad about it. And I wish I could have a do-over, but I can't, and I'm $4,800 poorer. Ever wish that? Or you look into... A relationship 
We heard this past week that our prime minister and his wife are separating. We don't know all the dynamics in their private life. But probably at some place along the line, something happened or a series of things happened and they probably wish they could have a do-over, a second chance. It may yet come to them. Don't forget to pray for healing, not only for them, but for any relationship that is breaking down. Or perhaps you're into the cusp of retirement and you wish you had begun some financial planning 40 years ago. And illustrations could go on and on and on about the opportunities for do-overs. Well, today in the scripture passage, we meet an individual who gets a do-over and we meet a nation that gets a do-over. The individual is Jonah. Jonah was an experienced prophet who lived in northern Israel at the time of Jeroboam II, who was a very successful king. He expanded the borders of the nation of northern Israel to their largest extent. He brought prosperity, and yet he was seen as an evil king because he failed to repent from the practices instilled by Jeroboam I, namely to build calves at Dan and Bethel for people to worship. But Jonah was an experienced prophet, and he had heard from God before, and now he gets a summons from God. Go to Nineveh, the great city, and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. And Jonah swerved off the path. He didn't go. He said no. Instead of going towards Nineveh, he went to Tarshish, and God sent a storm. And that storm kept on escalating and getting bigger, and the sailors finally succumbed to the recommendation of Jonah, who had said, toss me overboard. And he became, at that moment, a substitutionary sacrifice. And, and, and the people who threw him overboard, the sailors over, threw him overboard, prayed and made an offering and made vows to God, because the storm abated. What they didn't know is that God sent a great fish and Jonah got swallowed. And in the context of that great fish, Jonah had opportunity to ponder, to think, to reflect. The reality of pondering and thinking and reflecting in the midst of his distress and pain and sorrow led him to pray. And then he turns his mind towards Jerusalem not to Dan, not to Bethel, but towards Jerusalem, to the temple. And in the context of the temple is the place called the Holy of Holies. And in that place is the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat where once per year the high priest could sprinkle the blood of the atoning sacrifice of a lamb. And in that reality, Jonah experiences mercy and he is able to summarize what I think is the key, one of the key verses of Scripture. Salvation is from the Lord. It is God who brings about a change of heart and a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. It is God who washes away our sin. 
It is God who gives us hope in the future. It is God who gives us a new opportunity. Salvation is from the Lord, Jonah confesses, and God speaks to the great fish, and there is this expulsion of protein along with Jonah onto the shore. A new opportunity, a do-over, a second chance. And in focus, because God says second time, go to that great city and preach the message I will give you. Now we have to focus on the larger reality. The reality of the city to which Jonah is sent. It is described as a great city, not only in terms of size, but also population. If you go to chapter 4 of Jonah, when God responds to Jonah's ongoing frustration and anger, he says there are 120,000 in Nineveh who do not know their left hand from their right hand. Well, who would that be? Well, children, I think. Little kids. 120,000 who don't know their left hand from their right hand. Well, when you think of 120,000 kids, how many adults would there be? Uh, so, so there's a great population. We speculate perhaps a million or so. Uh, a big city. The reality of size should also then help us to understand the reality of context. These were city-states, and they were often in conflict with their neighbors, and so they built walls. Some of the walls of the citadel of uh, Nineveh were thought to have been 100 feet high. Stop, think about that for a moment. A 100-foot high wall. So thick, it is said, that three chariots could ride on the top of the wall side by side. So in effect, a three-lane highway around the top. You stop to think about that just in terms of size and, and, and the amount of effort that it would have taken to build that and also to maintain it. It was a great city in many, many different ways. It was also a, a city of great wickedness. The prophet Nahum uh, functions about a hundred years after Jonah, and the prophet Nahum uh, speaks words of judgment against the city of Nineveh. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. And then he, he concludes by saying, King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your nobles lie down to rest, your people are scattered on the mountains, no one can gather them, nothing can heal you, your wound is fatal, all who hear news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? But remember, this is 100 years later from where we are right now in the, in the historical context. So it's a city not only great in size and great in population and great in building, but great in evil and great in cruelty and great in causing profound distress to anyone 
not, oh, to anyone not their citizen, to anyone who was their enemy. Not only that, but they were also, it was also a city that was on edge, a city that was concerned. And, and as a city, we know what that feels like. Do you remember the flood of a couple of years ago? Do you remember how people felt on edge? You remember how people were concerned about the state of dikes? You remember how people were anxious? You remember how you, perhaps, were anxious? Maybe not for yourself, but for your family members. You, you remember what it was like to be on edge. And then you just think about COVID and the pandemic and the reality of catching a bug. I have a good friend who's dealing with long COVID, still struggles with it to this very day and may never be able to look at it in the rearview mirror. You remember being on edge? Well, the people of Nineveh had experienced three different things. Two plagues in which many of their population got sick and died. And on June 15th, 736 B.C., June 15th, 736 B.C., just let me make sure I get the date right, so that if you look me up on, the, on the Google later, that's a reality. Yeah, June 6th. 736 B.C., they experienced a total solar eclipse. It got dark. Some of you may have read that Confederate Yankee in King Arthur's court. Remember the scene when the, the sun was going to disappear and everybody got anxious, concerned. Because a solar eclipse, they didn't understand it as we might today was seen as a very bad omen. And so they wondered, what was the future going to be like? And it is to that city that Jonah is sent a second time with a message. And he has to put effort into it. He was on his way to Tarshish, which is in present-day Spain, so I'm going to assume from my geography that he was on the Mediterranean Sea. And when he got blasted out of that great fish in a shot of protein onto the shore, he probably got put on the eastern bank of the Mediterranean. That would have left him about 800 kilometers from Nineveh. No high-speed transit. No light rail, no resume bus service like is happening today in the Fraser Valley. No high-speed cars, no trains, planes, or automobiles. Maybe a donkey, maybe a camel, in all likelihood on foot. At about 30 kilometers a day, with taking days off for Sabbath rest, he would have been almost 30 days en route pondering the message that God gave him to speak that he really didn't want to speak because he didn't have any love at all for the Assyrians. 
Jonah has to put effort into it. And then he comes to this great city, which could be intimidating at the best of times. And he goes and he speaks in Hebrew five words. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. In Hebrew, it's five words. In English, it's eight. Imagine an eight-word sermon this morning. Or imagine a 12-word one. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Oh, that's nice. I'm done. Now you don't believe that, do you? Jonah speaks. And notice how it is described in terms of reaction. The Ninevites believed God. It doesn't say the Ninevites believed in God. Because if it had said that, then they could say, well, how do you understand God exactly? You know, is he omnipotent? Is he omniscient? Is he eternal? Is he infinite? How do you understand him exactly? Is there anything that God cannot do? Be careful how you answer that question. Because there are things God cannot do. For example, he can't quit. How can a God of eternity quit? So the things he can't do. In the words of a theologian, he is limited by his own divinity. And we could debate all of these things. The reality is that they did not believe just simply in God. No, they believed God. They believed that these were words from God, these five Hebrew words, these eight English words, these were words from God that demanded a reaction. Seventy-eight years ago, today, something of great significance happened. Anyone know? Speak up, it's okay. Seventy-eight years ago today, something of great significance happened. Little boy, the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. Seventy-eight years ago today. What would their response have been if on June 27, 1945, President Truman had sent uh, an ambassador to Hiroshima and had said, yet 40 days on August the 6th, Hiroshima will be destroyed. Would they have believed him? And yet it happened. And when that bomb fell in the first instance of its falling and its explosion, some 70,000 people died. And after that, thousands and tens of thousands more. And it'll likely get mentioned on the news sometime today. Would the people of Hiroshima have packed up and left 78 years ago? Would there have been a panic? We don't know. We could only speculate. 
But imagine you hear a word today on the news, yet 40 days and Abbotsford will be destroyed. I think that makes it September 22nd. How would you respond? Would you believe? Or would you think, oh, just another conspiracy theory? Another word of panic? Another word of deep concern? Probably don't need to worry about it. But the Ninevites heard it, and they responded. From the greatest to the least, they put on sackcloth, and they began to fast. I don't know if you've ever worn anything made of burlap, but it is not very comfortable against your skin. Then the king, when he heard the warning, got off of his throne. Imagine that. He got off of his throne, sat in the dust, wore sackcloth, and mandated three things. Number one, a thoroughgoing fast, including all of the animals, and some scholars laugh at that as a possibility, but that's the, the record. Prayer, urgent prayer, not introduced at the table, let's just quick pray a minute, but a, a prayer that went on examining the conditions of their hearts and of their lives. And finally, a cessation of doing evil in wickedness. In other words, quit whatever you're doing that destroys relationships with God, with yourself, with others, and with the creation. Quit it. In the hope, the king says, that God may yet relent. Think for a moment about your own experience of repentance. When you have felt sorry for a sin you committed, something that you did that broke the relationship between yourself and God, Something that you did that broke the relationship between yourself and yourself. Something that you did that broke a relationship between yourself and another. Or something that you did when you casually chucked a bottle out of your car window into the ditch, not caring that it polluted God's creation. How was your repentance? Was it deep? Was it urgent? Was it thorough? Or was it, oops, I'm sorry. The reality was that these people repented urgently, thoroughly, completely. They engaged in a long-term obedience in the hope that God would relent. And he did. But now, I have a theological question for you to ponder. Was God surprised that they relented? Or, or, or that they repented? And were, were they surprised that he relented? In other words, did God know 
that there was going to be a change of heart and a change of mind that would lead to a change of direction. Did God know? Well, that's something to ponder. And as you ponder it, remember this, that the consequence of sin is death. And death is a total inability to make a choice that leads to life. And so, yes, God knew. There cannot be a change of heart and a change of mind that leads to a change of direction unless God permits it, allows it, and carries it out. That is true for all of us because we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God has made us alive. Notice those eight words in English. Now you reflect on that for a moment and imagine that if you are in seminary writing a sermon as a student and having to submit it to your homiletics professor, and that professor will look at it and say eight words. No introduction, no textual basis, no illustration, no application, no gospel, no hope, just simply warning. That's all. Likely earn an F. Go back and do it again. But when God uses it, God, as my dad used to say to me almost incessantly in Dutch, Onze lieve Heer kan met een kromme stok een rechte slaan maken. Our dear Lord can hit, make a straight line with a crooked stick. God can hit a straight line and change people's hearts and minds. Jonah wasn't happy. We'll look at that next week. The Ninevites, no doubt, were happy when 40 days had passed and they were still there. But now the question has to come. In light of what we know from Nahum, who comes to speak 100 years later, we have to ask ourselves, while they became corrupt and were judged 100 years later, were the people at Noah's day sincere? Was their repentance authentic? Was it sincere? Did they had a second chance? Well, Jesus speaks to that. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, he lauds the Ninevites because they responded to the preaching of Jonah and they will be given a role in the judgment later. And then he says, and someone greater than Jonah, referencing himself, I believe, someone greater than Jonah is here, and you too need to repent. We'll get back to that in a minute. Were they sincere? Yes. Was Jonah sincere? Yes. He went and he did, in the second opportunity, what God told him to do. Was he happy with the outcome? No. He wanted the Assyrians destroyed because to him 
The Assyrians were the enemy of his people, a threat to his people's existence. And yet, God uses Jonah to bring about a change of heart and a change of mind that led to a change of direction on the part of the Ninevites. And they get lauded by Jesus. So what do we learn? Well, we learn a number of things. Number one, we learn that repentance is both an event and a process. Repentance is both an event and a process. Next week, Sunday, the Lord willing, some people will make before you public declaration of their faith. They will get a certificate probably that has a date on it for next week's Sunday. It marks the event of their acknowledging before God and before his people, I believe in Jesus. I believe he is the Son of God. I believe he died and rose again. I believe he paid for my sin. That's what that event signifies. But it's a process that unfolds now for the rest of their lives, hopefully for decades. Decades of service into the kingdom. Will they stumble and slip and fall? Likely. Will they need to repent again? Absolutely. But does that make their first repentance and acknowledgement inauthentic? Absolutely not. So look at it with hope that God blesses even a small turn in the right direction. It is, event, it is an event and a process. The second lesson we learn from the story of Second Chance is that all people image God. Now, I'm, I'm trying to learn uh, a different way of saying this because I used to say, say quite glibly and quite quickly all people are image bearers of God. I'm engaging in my own personal study of the Heidelberg Catechism. Reverend Andy Kivenhoven, who used to be the banner editor, has a wonderful commentary on, on the Catechism. And in the commentary that I was reading this week, he says, we image God, we don't bear the image of God. Because when you bear something, you carry it. No, he says, you image God. You reflect God. In true knowledge, true righteousness, true holiness. You can think God's thoughts after him. You can act God's way after him. You can reflect God's character after him. You image God. And it's a really hard transition for me to make, so I'm working at it all the time. I image God. So do the people who I consider my enemies. God will say to Jonah when he's angry that the people of Nineveh are not destroyed after 40 days. There are 120,000 here who do not know their left hand from their right hand and many cattle besides. Shouldn't I have mercy to them? And Jonah would have said no. 
And I need to learn to forgive the person who I image, or, or, or the person in whose image is who's made in the image of God. I need to learn to do that. And I can hold deep resentments. I have 4,800 of them that live in the back of my mind. And I have to learn to forgive. And I have to learn to have mercy. And I have to learn to hope. But there's one other lesson that we need to learn. As Jonah approaches the city of Nineveh with all its big walls and all its people, he could have felt intimidated. When we read in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus approaches the city of Jerusalem, he is not intimidated, he is saddened. He says, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how would I have gathered you together as a hen gathers his chick, her chicks under her wings, but you would not. You would not. You would not respond to the warnings, to the teachings, to the parables I gave you. What does he do? He doesn't turn his back on the city. He goes into the city, and there in the city, he is judged and condemned and forced to carry his cross outside the city. And there he is crucified for the sin of the world. There he is crucified to replace the blood of the substitutionary sacrifice on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. There he is crucified. And there he says these remarkable words. It is finished. For your salvation no do-over required. You've been listening to the latest message in our summer series in the book of Jonah, where we're learning about the heart of mankind and the heart of God. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.